The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I did not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As you remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that before Abraham was, you were, and you still are. That you are the hope of Abraham and our hope as well. May we learn to rest in you, learn to rest in grace this day as we seek your face in this time. We pray this in your honor and glory. Amen. When I was in elementary school, my parents bought a small house out in the country. And whenever we were there, my brother Chris and I would disappear into the woods and be gone for pretty much the whole day. Fishing, building forts, tramping through the woods, looking for arrowheads and other treasures. We liked to imagine that we were frontiersmen like Daniel Boone, exploring virgin wilderness and living off the land. Daniel Boone was an easy hero for me, the great hero of my childhood. He was larger than life, a careful student of creation, a man who moved from campfire to Congress with a sense of self-assurance. I thought he could do no wrong. Recently, however, I came across a fascinating interview with the author of a new biography of Boone. It turns out he wasn't perfect after all. He could be incredibly selfish. He was an opportunist and a self-promoter. He probably had a Native American wife and family that he kept secret from his first wife. Boone, as it turns out, was just an ordinary man. That's what happens with most of our heroes when we take a closer look at them. They may be portrayed as models of courage, conviction, and fortitude, but upon closer inspection, they, they can turn out to be arrogant and selfish because we don't know how to handle these imperfections and indiscretions, we toppled their statues into the dust and we move on to other heroes, only to discover that our new heroes are just the same as the old ones. And that leaves us with two options. We can become cynics with no faith in humankind and little hope for ourselves, or we can re-examine what it is that we look for in a hero and what we hope to learn from them. 
This second option, the second option, it seems to be the way of the Bible. In scripture, you see, there are no unsullied heroes. David murders Uriah and steals his wife. Rachel is riddled with envy and worships idols. Moses has anger issues. Martha struggles with resentment. Peter is a coward. And yet, you know, each of these men and women is a hero. Not because they're perfect, but because at the end of the day, they find that they have no other choice but to turn to God and rest on his grace. They are heroes because they take us back to the God who made us and the God who saves us. One of those heroes in scripture is a man named Abraham. And this summer, we're going to spend the months of June and July walking alongside Abraham as he learns to rest on grace, as he steps onto the path of God's promises and by doing so, becomes the father of faith for all of us. Now, like me, I expect many of you will be in and out of town this summer catching up on all of that travel that got canceled during COVID. And as you bounce around, I want to encourage you to treat this story of Abraham and this series of sermons as home base. So when you're out of town, tune in online. When you're in town, make it a priority to be here on Sundays. Not only will this provide a thread of continuity through this season of diversion, it will help you to learn to rest on grace as well. We first meet Abraham in Genesis 11. And it's at a time in the story of scripture when things are looking pretty desperate. A time when the story really needs a hero. I hope you'll turn to Genesis 11 with me. It's on page eight in the Red Bibles. And as you turn there, I want to give you a brief recap of, of where we are in the story of scripture at this point. So after the astonishing account of creation in Genesis one and two, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, rebel against God and they are banished from their garden home. Their sons famously fall into conflict, one killing the other. And their descendants become so corrupt, so corrupt that God eventually chooses to flood the inhabited world and start fresh with a man named Noah. Well, tragically, the story of the first family repeats itself in the family of Noah, and the world spirals into disobedience, culminating in rebellion at a place called Babel. There, the people build a tower to the heavens to usurp the throne of God, only to be thwarted when God breaks down their communication across the face of the earth. That's the state of things when we come to Genesis 11. The picture of the world is one of corruption and confusion headed toward despair. Hope doesn't have a place in this story so far. And it's here at this low point that we are introduced to Abraham in verses 27 to 32 of chapter 11, and the story of redemption begins. Now you'll notice that here and for the next five chapters, uh, Abraham is called Abram. That's because uh, in, it's in chapter 17 that God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and for the sake of simplicity, I'm simply going to refer to him as Abraham throughout. Now it's easy to get lost in the list of names and places here at the end of chapter 11. It's easy to bypass them as a result, but you can learn a lot about a person from their backstory. 
And here's what I want you to notice about Abraham's backstory. Abraham's backstory introduces us to a man who has suffered loss. It's the loss of family, the loss of home, and the loss of hope. So Abraham is one of three sons of Terah. Abraham's brother Haran dies young, leaving the family bereft, and leaving Abraham responsible for taking care of Haran's son, Lot. And we don't know why the family decides to to break up at this point, with some of them leaving their homeland near Ur. Perhaps it's a part of their grieving. Perhaps it's because of drought or war. What we do know is that on the heels of his brother's death, Abraham's family uproots. Having set out for the land of Canaan, they end up in a place confusingly, confusingly also called Haran that's actually hundreds of miles off in the wrong direction from their intended destination. Again, we don't know why they go there, but the story impresses upon us a sense of dislocation, loss of homeland, and loss of direction. Well, then there's the heartbreaking loss at the center of Abraham's backstory. as the loss of fertility. In verse 30, we are told quite simply that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She had no child. In a time and place where family was everything, to be childless meant that you had no future. You had no future. Instead of an heir, Abraham was saddled with his nephew, the son of his dead brother for whom he had taken responsibility. Having lost his brother, his homeland, and his hope for the future, we're told last of all in verse 32 that Abraham lost his father. I'll never forget my mother sharing with me after the death of her parents that even though she was an adult, in her 50s, she felt like she was an orphan. That's what loss does to us. And I imagine it is what loss did to Abraham. Now all of this is a setup for the action that's about to take place in chapter 12. And it's important to keep this in mind. The story of scripture up until this point is basically a story of incredible glory followed by disastrous loss. A lost relationship with God, the lost garden, the loss of life. Abraham's personal story, it mirrors the broader human story, both then and now. And so we're, we're set up to hear the story of Abraham as it unfolds, both as an inflection point in the story of humanity and as an invitation for us to see ourselves in him. Our lives are marked by loss. And they're going to be invited into grace and ultimately back into glory through the story of this man. So we move from scene one Abraham's backstory at the end of chapter 11 to scene 2, which is God's invitation in the opening verses of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Without any introduction or explanation, God turns up in the middle of Abraham's story and he says, go, go. And the first thing he does 
is to invite Abraham into further loss and dislocation. Leave behind everything familiar to you, and I will show you where to go. Now, that's pretty sobering. Following God means turning back on our old loyalties, familiar places, former friends. Saying yes to God means saying no to so much else. It's part of the journey of faith. To make matters more difficult, God doesn't even tell Abraham where he's headed at first. He just says go, and he assures Abraham that he'll guide him along the way. Choosing to trust in God can involve a heck of a lot of unknowns. It's not uncommon for God to say go without specifying where he wants us until we have started leaving things behind. God may not say where he wants Abraham to go, but he does say what he's going to do for him as he goes. And the promises that follow here are astonishing. First, God promises to give him a homeland. It's implicit in verse 1 and made clear in verse 7. When Abraham first steps foot into the land of Canaan, God says, to your offspring I will give this land. To the man who leaves his home at God's instruction, God will give a land greater than he's ever seen before. I will make of you a great nation, God says next. From this man who has no children, whose wife is barren, God promises to draw out a multitude of peoples. So right out of the gate, God invites Abraham to trust in a promise, the fulfillment of which he will not see in his life. Much the same is true for us as we long for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. God continues, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God will give such immense material blessing that Abraham's wealth will flow out onto others. Not only will he have great wealth, however, he'll be a man of noble character whose name is great and known to all. God then explains the extent of his blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only will God be on Abraham's side, cursing those who seek to do him harm, God will actually cause all the families of the earth to be blessed through him. So in chapter 11, we saw the families of the earth scattered to the four corners of the globe in confusion and despair. Here, God promises blessing to every single one of those scattered families through a single man. The curse will be reversed through the blessing given to Abraham and his offspring. So with just a few words, the God who created all things begins to set the course of human history back on track. And we have no record of Abraham's response to God's command and the promises that accompany it. Surely he had questions. We only know what we're told in verse 4 which is quite simply, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. It's incredible. God said go, so Abraham goes. The story of redemption, the story of redemption throughout Scripture, it begins with God speaking. It continues when God's people obey. Grace is followed by faith. 
And here we turn to the final scene in our reading in verses 4 through 8. So we began with Abraham's backstory, continued with God's invitation, and we now turn our attention to Abraham's obedience. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When God called Abraham, he didn't relieve him of the burden of caring for Lot. This is a man who would cause Abraham all kinds of trouble in the future. Abraham took that responsibility with him. Nor did God give Abraham a fertile young wife to bear him all of those promised children. Sarai went with him. The picture that we have of Abraham here is of a man who's been blessed with modest wealth at the beginning, but encumbered by loss and limitations. He is not the most promising candidate to bring blessing to the world. He's got a lot of baggage. But thankfully, this is how God works. To those of you uh, in midlife with a mortgage, multiple kids, busy jobs, and seemingly intractable personal issues, this picture should give you hope. God didn't give Abraham a do-over on life. God took him where he was amidst all of his loss along with all of his baggage and he invited him into something new. He can do the same with us. Well, the story continues at the end of verse five. They came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the, of the Lord. So God spoke to Abraham in verse one and promised him land. Now God appears to him and says, this is the place. This is the place. Abraham still has no children. Sarah is still infertile. And though the land has been given to him, it is completely occupied by other people. So what does he do? Well, he builds an altar and he worships the God who makes impossible promises. But it's not just one altar, it's two. Having come into the land, he crosses it. And when he comes to the other side, he builds a second altar and he worships again. It's a simple sequence that has profound consequences. Abraham claims the land. He claims the land not through conquest, but through worship. In the ancient Near East, gods were everywhere. A single hilltop could have its own God. A river valley had another God. There was a God who brought rain and there was a God who fattened cattle. Very few believed in a God who ruled over all things everywhere. When Abraham crossed the land, leaving altars as he went, he was making a claim. My God is God of all things and this land is his to give. 
Abraham's worship was a statement of trust and it was an act of hope. He was banking everything on the promises that God had made and he was overthrowing the idols of the Canaanites as he went. If you want to be sustained in this life of faith, you will follow this rhythm of worship. Idols are everywhere. Temptations abound. It is only by turning and returning to God in praise that we learn to see that he is present and active. Now there's one further detail here that I want you to notice. We're told that Abraham called on the name of the Lord in verse 8. Now back at the beginning of chapter 11, the people who built the Tower of Babel did so in order to make a name for themselves, as we are told. They did so in order to promote, promote their own honor and to seal their place in history. Seeking greatness for one's self is the essence of rebellion. That's Babel. By contrast, at the beginning of chapter 12, when God makes his promises to Abraham, God promises to make Abraham's name great. He promises to grant him honor and to seal his place in history as a gift. It's not greatness that's bad. It's how you gain it. So how does Abraham become great? But when Abraham finally comes to the land that's been promised to him, he worships God, and as we're told, he calls on the name of the Lord, meaning that he places the name of God above every other name and proclaims the honor of God above all others, even and especially his own name. We see here that greatness isn't claimed by climbing your way to heaven, Greatness is given to those who humble themselves before the mighty name of God. So the story of redemption begins with a single man living at a time when hope had been lost. And the promises that God makes to Abraham in this chapter, they shape the entire story of the Bible to come. So from here on out, the Bible becomes the story of Abraham's descendants, Israel, who are given a land to inhabit, Canaan, on whom God pours out his blessing through Moses. The story, though, is not without its ups and downs. The heroes are all too human. The land is lost repeatedly through disobedience to God's law. Blessings are given, but not extended. And at times, time and again, everything seems hopeless. But then God speaks once again, and a descendant of Abraham gives birth to a boy whom she names Jesus. And in Jesus, all of God's promises are kept. It's good for us to have heroes. We can learn a lot from them. But at the end of the day, at the climax of the story, what we need isn't a hero, we need a savior. This is the point that Jesus was making to the Pharisees in our reading from John's gospel when he said to them, look, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. The story of the Bible is the story of God's impossible promises kept and fulfilled in the son of Abraham 
Jesus Christ. It's a story filled with heroes who teach us to rest on grace. And it's a story that we have been invited into through faith in Jesus Christ, the ultimate keeper of all of God's promises. And my hope this summer, my hope this summer is that you will step into this story, trust in Jesus, and rest on grace. And that as we do this together, the name of God will be made great among us and in the lives of those around us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for imperfect heroes. We thank you for Abraham, for the gift of your grace to him, the faith with which he obeyed and went out. We thank you for the multiple ways in which you blessed him, culminating in the gift of your son, our savior, Jesus. May we learn to rest on grace as well, to trust in the promises you have made, and by doing so, to honor your name. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.